I am excited. This text is one that we hopefully will not just preach, but rejoice in, delight in, marinate in for every day of our life. This is the resurrection of Christ. We're in John 20, if you want to make your way that way. Uh, this is a, uh, traditionally an Easter text. Late March, early April, we're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John's uh, resurrection account, and, and we're in John's this morning. I've loved it. I said it last week. I'll say it again. I love that we're in an Easter text, explicitly Easter text. At uh, Thanksgiving in November, it just reminds me that the truth of Easter is not a seasonal truth. It's an everyday reality for the follower of Christ Jesus. And so this is good news, and I think it's exactly what we need right now in the midst of our circumstances as a, as a uh, individually and our families and as a community in light of uh, a nation, in light of the uh, divisiveness that there is, in light of the pandemic that everyone's exhausted by, we need to be reminded of the truth of Christ risen from the grave. And so I'm thankful. We're in John 20. Uh, these, uh, all four gospel accounts in way of kind of an introduction, um, none of them end with the death and resurrection of Christ. It's pretty cool that uh, uh, they all have another word given after the resurrection. And there's a reason for that. As culminating as Christ risen from the grave is, uh, it's still, even in and of itself, a means to an end. And that end is that anyone who is in Christ, anyone who um, has by grace through faith been saved, trusted in Christ for their salvation, the resurrection proves that you'll be raised up on that last day. That just as the, uh, the grave couldn't hold him, it won't hold you either. You have victory over sin, death, and the grave. And yet, uh, we don't merely celebrate that and go on about our business. Uh, there is something that the resurrection for the believer, there's something it demands. There's something necessitative from the moment of awakening to the truth of Christ. We are then commissioned to take this good news, this open door to redemption, to uh, this bridge to God's holiness, and us and our sinfulness, the finished work of Christ on the cross, that we don't merely walk across it, we point others to the way, that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and uh, no one comes to the Father except through him, and that message is given to us, those who have had their eyes open to the truth, illumined to the truth of Christ, um, who have been born again, are immediately entrusted with something, and that is indeed the gospel message, that we take it to a lost world in darkness, we take the light to the world. So if you've ever wondered what your purpose is as a Christian, you don't have to wonder any longer. This text is going to spell it out, and every gospel spells it out. In Matthew, it says, go make disciples of all nations. Mark, it says, preach the gospel to all creation. Luke, it says, take the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins found in Christ, take it to the nations. And then John, we're going to see it here. All four gospel accounts end the same way, clarifying, revealing, even defining the purpose of those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you would stand to your feet, and I want to read you this morning's text. It's John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31, and this is the very word of God. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. 
And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of God for the people of God and the people of God said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Father, I pray that you would speak through me in these few moments, just illumine us to the truth again of the resurrection, not merely as a historical event, but as a life-changing reality. And Lord, even as the disciples in this moment were, uh, they, they met you, they experienced the risen Christ, and it changed them. It transformed them from fear to joyous, and you commissioned them, and you equipped and empowered them. Uh, for the work to be done. Lord, this is not meant merely for them. It is meant for us, John says, so that you might believe. So Lord, minister to us now through the power of your Holy Spirit in this text. May it be to us as it was to them in that day. Lord, may you increase. You must increase as I preach. I must decrease. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Mary was the first to see the risen Christ. She was the first to declare he is risen. And that was Sunday morning. Well, here's Sunday evening. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, that Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. The first thing you understand is uh, they were Christ's closest followers. Uh, Jesus was falsely accused, falsely tried, um, tortured, beaten, mocked, spat upon, nailed to a cross, and crucified. And they're going, gee whiz, the Romans and the Jewish leadership are pretty serious about squelching this movement of Christ in the gospel. And if they did it to him, they're likely going to do it to us. They'd like to end this thing once and for all. So they're afraid. They're afraid that his fate will be their fate. And they're locked in a room. Now I'm going to give you like seven-ish things as we go through the text this morning. And the first one is this. God uses unlikely candidates. Now for some of you, I hope that's good news. In fact, some of you, I have a feeling just from my experience in ministry about 20 years now I have a feeling some of you guys feel somewhat like the disciples like you certainly believe in Christ and you associate yourself with him but as far as it comes to representing him to your uh, business partner to your neighbors to the guys or gals you work out with um, even to your kids or extended family you probably feel somewhat inadequate somewhat afraid Somewhat like, hey, there probably needs to be somebody trained in theology uh, to represent Jesus well. I'm going to screw this up. But there's some element of fear. And, uh, and you would say, I'm, a, I'm an unlikely candidate. Maybe I'm a, um, 
a uh, unusable candidate even. And I want to tell you, there's kind of a, there's kind of a double-edged sword here. There's a good and a bad to that. Uh, the bad is it's not true. <laughs> the bad is uh, you don't look any less likely or less usable than guys who are locking themselves in a room for fear that they might die if they're associated with Christ. That would seem to me that that's not the seed of the gospel that's going to pierce and overthrow a Roman Empire and spread to the very ends of the earth so there's a remnant of believers in every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. You don't see it off to a strong start right here. And so I would say it's wrong that you're unusable even in your inadequacies. I would say the good is this. There's something um, to someone who realizes their need, who says, you know what? Uh, I'm willing, I just don't know what I'm doing. I've, uh, I, I love one of my hobbies and, and, and ministry outlets is coaching youth sports. Some of you guys know that. I've got five sons, so kind of comes with the territory. It's a great chance for me to be with them in, uh, in something they love to do. But for me, it's a ministry. I, I love getting to know the kids. I love getting to know their families. I love being out and about, mixing up in the community. But I'll tell you just from coaching, right around six, I'm about 64 teams in at this stage in my youth sports career. I'm growing weary, but I've still got a two-year-old. So anyway, um, about 60-plus teams in, uh, by my math, uh, there's, there's, there's different kinds of kids. There's good athletes, and there's not good athletes, bad athletes. There's kids that aren't, but, uh, but there's also coachable kids and uncoachable kids. And you get an, and I'll just be honest with you, you know, the ideal is a coachable kid that's really got talent. Well, that's, you know, that's a dream. But it's not too far behind that, that you take a kid that doesn't have great talent, who's not the obvious superstar, and yet he's so co- he knows that he doesn't know what he doesn't know. He's saying, hey, coach, I've never really played this game. I've never played it well. Can you help me? How do I do this? It's a sponge. And as a coach, you get excited. You're like, I'll take this guy. I'll take seven of this guy, and we can make a run. Because he wants to learn. He's willing to, to, uh, to compete, and he's willing to be coached. Now, you take a kid who's, I don't care whether he's a good athlete or a bad athlete, if he's a know-it-all, as a coach, you just kind of get deflated. If he's a kid that you can't teach and you can't coach, it kind of sours the process. It's not really a kid you want on your team, no matter how good he is. If he continues to be obstinate and stubborn, even if he's your best player, he'll find himself on the bench. And I want to tell you, in, on, on the Lord's team, so to say, which is every born-again follower of Christ, it's a misnomer that merely the gifted, seminary-trained, uh, uh, vocational ministers are the ones that are supposed to be carrying forth the gospel. That's a misnomer. That's a lie from the enemy. Ephesians 4 is very clear that even the apostles and prophets and teachers and evangelists, even they are meant to use their gifts within the body of Christ to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Whose is the work of the ministry? Say it with me. Saints. Who's a saint? Anyone who's saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We would never take in the army our generals and send them out to war. We would say, no, the the most experienced, the most trained, train the army so that we can have an army go to war. We have an opportunity for success. It's the same. And if you're one who goes, well, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't feel very gifted, very talented, I uh, feel inadequate. Uh, listen, that's not an altogether bad place. I'd rather you be dependent, utterly dependent on the Lord working in you and through you than self-reliant or self-dependent or self-confident. Then you're truly unusable. Right now you only feel unusable. But you're actually in a sweet spot where you can lean into the Holy Spirit, be fully dependent on God, and find out what it is to be used for, to move forth the gospel. 
which will be the greatest joy of your life. It's the privilege of the stewardship of your salvation that many of you, I have a feeling, haven't even awakened to. So this is good news this morning. It doesn't end at salvation for you and I. The, 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 uh, uh, Jesus didn't save you to get you out of earth into heaven, but to get himself from heaven into earth. He wants to now use you. These guys were unlikely candidates. They felt inadequate. They felt unusable. I remember 20 years ago in youth ministry, I, uh, the lights were coming on for me about making disciples. I wanted to recruit some of the men and women in our body to come and teach the youth and to disciple them. And just going to men and women who were long-standing members of the church I was in and inviting them into the ministry, here's what I kept getting over and over. I, I don't know what I'm doing. How do, I'm probably not your guy. I don't feel like I can do it. I, uh, I don't know my Bible enough. I don't have any training. These were, these were like leaders in our church, and it was discouraging. And honestly, I think it, it ought to be. Because uh, we are meant not merely to be saved people. We are commissioned people. The moment you're saved, 2 Corinthians 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Praise God. All this is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. And, no period, no comma, and given us the ministry of reconciliation. What? That's right. The moment he illumines you to the truth of Christ and saves you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ is the moment he calls you into the ministry. And you may feel like these guys, oh my gosh. Well, stay tuned. Uh, the, the, the glorious response that we would love is the response of Isaiah. You remember Isaiah 6? <laughs> Isaiah looks at the righteous, sees God coming to his temple, the righteous of God, uh, he, he, he claims, woe is me. And this is a prophet, he just goes, man, I am filthy in light of God's righteousness. If we, if we really truly understand the holiness of God, that's where we are, woe is me. That means judgment on me. And then the angel in his vision takes the uh, tongs, takes the coal out of the fire, brings it and touches his lips and says, your sins are atoned for. And do you remember what Isaiah said? I mean, in light of the fact that he saw his wretchedness in light of God's holiness and was cleansed. Your, your sin, which he knew, I'll be forever, I could never be righteous like God is righteous. God atoned for him. It's a gracious, merciful act of God. His sins were atoned for. And his response was, here I am, send me. I'll do whatever, whenever you just mercifully and graciously forgave me. And th this, is, this is pre the finished work of Christ. We can see uh, the promise that Isaiah held to that Messiah would come. He's come. He's bled. He's died. He's risen. And the Christian response is meant to be, here I am. Send me. And a lot of times for a lot of us, it's here I am. Send Bill. You know, send somebody that's trained. <laughs> like, send Kenan, you might be thinking. Listen, you know what my chief job is? Not to do the work of the ministry. I'm to discharge the duties of my ministry faithfully, but I'm supposed to equip you to do the work of the ministry. That's my primary calling, to equip the people of God to be out there as his heralds and ambassadors and disciple makers. And to the extent that you're afraid, I'm okay with that. I'm okay. There's probably some good recognition that you are utterly dependent on God to work in you and through you or nothing substantial eternally is going to happen. And I'd say amen to that. But to the extent that you're overwhelmed with fear and it's paralysis by analysis, or your feet are in stone, that's, I'm meant to rebuke that. I'm meant to call you out of that. 
I'm not just here to get on you and put a finger in your face. I'm saying there's something so unbelievable that you've been called to. I want to see you get in there, trust the Lord, get in the game, see how God might use you. I don't want you to so-called waste your life. As many believers are doing. That's the, that's the enemy's trick. To make you think that you're saved and now you can just uh, a little bit more joyfully participate in the rat race of uh, the American dream. The Christian has a far greater calling than that. Now, I'm going to come right through the front door and tell you, I know I'm in verse 1, I'm kind of somehow chasing some rabbits here, but I want to tell you, I literally want, by the end of this message, I want when Monday morning comes around and you go to wherever your place of work is or, or even when you're, if you see family over the holidays or, or what, I literally want a different kind of perspective for our people and for my own life. I want us to have the hair on the back of our neck stand up a little bit. I want to have the adrenaline glands get going a little bit. I want a little bit of that. Oh my goodness. There's some spiritual, uh, gospel, eternally significant moments that are in the works. And I'm uh, being sent out there to, be a, to play a part in this um, work that God is doing redemptively in someone's heart. And man, that's, that gets me going a little bit. I'm not just here to eat the turkey. I'm not just here to say hi and check on your health. Man, I'm a herald and an ambassador for the good news that has saved and transformed my life. And God might in fact use me today to impact eternity in your life. And there's some, there's, some, there's some good, healthy, nervous energy right there. Anybody that's ever been an athlete or played in a big game, if you don't have butterflies before that game, then you ain't got a pulse. You're going to be a little scared until the first hit. All right, and then you're excited to be out there. That's how it is. Okay, listen. First thing he uses unlikely candidates, be encouraged. Okay, if you feel like, well, that's me, good. God's going to use you. Look, Jesus came and stood among them. That's the second thing that uh, when Jesus shows up, everything changes. I tried so hard to think of a more theologically tight way to say that. But when Jesus shows up, the game changer has arrived. The one who empowers you for the ministry is here. You're not going alone. You remember Nebuchadnezzar through Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego bound into the fire? And, um, and you remember that they, uh, he looks out there and he goes, how many people did I throw in that fire? Weren't there three why do I see four and the fourth looks like a son of God? That's, that's ministry. Like the, the son of God shows up and walks among you. He walks with you through the fiery furnaces of your circumstances so that the gospel goes forth. So that the proclamation of God's sovereignty and faithfulness can be declared and received by lost people. Jesus shows up, everything changes. And he came and stood among them and he said to them, peace be with you. Um, I'm a big college football fan. My boys and I love watching college football. I don't know who you're a fan of, uh, but uh, you got to appreciate at least, even if you had a guy sitting here this morning right on this seat with a Longhorn shirt on, this was probably, a, I, I had to uh, probably jabbed him a little bit, but no matter who you're a fan of, you got to respect Texas A&M's uh, situation. They've got a great tradition. I don't think they played yesterday, but they've got a great tradition. If they have a home game, they're tough. They have a good football program. But everybody knows they're one of the toughest places to go to and play because they've got the home of the 12th man. And they take their fandom a little bit more seriously than, than most 
sane humans. Like you go to that place and the entire student body, like they train and they prepare for what's happening. They feel like they are legitimately a part of this team. So you have 11 on the field, but they're the 12th man. They, they're, they're in it. They, they do not quit jumping and screaming for the entire game. They want to make it absolute. They want you to know that if you're going to come into that stadium and defeat their football team, you're going to have to defeat them. And if their guys are ever down, they're going to come alongside and re-instill them with a swagger and a confidence and a hope. I mean, there is power in the 12th man. Almost makes me wish I was an A&M fan. All right? This is, this is ministry. Man, this is, this is, Jesus comes, and you can't miss this. You know, there's 11 apostles outside of Jews. Now, I know Thomas isn't there right now, so maybe there's only 10 there. But never let the explicit nature of the text ruin a good illustration. All right, there's 11 disciples after Judas's betrayal, but the key is the 12th man. The key is the one who comes along and says, hey, you may be able to get through them, but you can't get through me. And for them to know that he is with them instills confidence and hope and power into them that they otherwise don't have. That Christians play, even though we're sojourners in a lost world, we've got the 12th man with us. And understand that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Amen? I told you, when Jesus shows up, changes everything. We're afraid, we're inadequate, we feel unusable. It's okay. Jesus appeared. And his first word to them is peace. By the way, it says right here, when he says peace, he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad. That word is uh, overwhelmed with joy. In other words, their fear turned to joy. Can I tell you, that is, a, that is the microcosm of every ministry moment of your life. I mean, you're, you're, and look, I've been in vocational, professional ministry for 20 years. I still get nervous sharing the gospel with a server at a restaurant or a, a neighbor or someone I uh, happen upon in my daily life where there's an opportunity. I still get nervous. Uh, and yet there's always this moment where when you just take that step of obedience and you, you feel that kind of prodding of the Holy Spirit and you testify to the truth of Christ, who he is, what he's done, what he's done in your own life, and you do it in love, even when, and usually when your life is a tangible expression of Christ's love, usually when they see Christ in you, it gives rise to the opportunity to speak about what it is that's unique and different about your life that they seem to recognize and desire. So there's got to be an integrity between who you are and what you say. But in those moments when you speak, um, there's this moment, it, it, it happens every single time, there's this moment where your fear calms and turns into joy. And all of a sudden, you just kind of recognize that the Lord is speaking through me. This is incredible. I'm being used by the God of the universe to proclaim truth. Maybe, it's, maybe it won't be received right now. Maybe it's a seed going in. But that gives me great hope and confidence that God, the Lord of the harvest, is going to water these seeds and grow a new creation in this person that I'm sharing with. You know what that does in me? Fear turns to joy. Man, you get a chance to share that. You may have the chance today. You may be in Sprouts this afternoon picking up some food for dinner, and you may have the chance to share the gospel with somebody. And I guarantee you, by the way, if some of you go to Sprouts today, you're going to be thinking about this. And you're going to go in a little bit nervous. What if it's true? Oh, my gosh. I feel extremely inadequate. That's fine. Just know that you aren't going in alone. You got the 12th man. And when that opportunity affords itself and you step up and speak, 
and you share, you're going to walk out of Sprouts with a little hop in your step. Maybe you just prayed with somebody to receive Christ. Maybe you got to plant a seed. But there's an eternally significant moment that you weren't blind to and you weren't meant to be. This is, this is who we are in Christ. This is our privilege. He says, peace be with you is the first thing he says. He shows them his hands. They, their, their fear turns to gladness. And then he says to them again, peace be with you. So by the way, a third thing I, I gave, I don't know if I said it as a third thing, but uh, for Jesus, when Jesus' presence comes upon us, our fear turns to joy. Okay, well now he says, peace be with you again. This is interesting. He just said it, he says it again. Uh, I like what J. Sidlow Baxter said. He said the first time he says, he's an the old theologian commentary, he says, the first time he said, peace be with you, was to still their fear. They're huddled in a room, they're afraid they're going to be killed. All of a sudden, Jesus is not dead, he's alive. All of a sudden, um, their fears were still, and they're excited. Who they thought was the victim is the victor. They're going, oh my goodness, we thought we were defeated, we're victorious. The celebration has ensued, and Jesus says the second time, peace be with you this time, it's to still their joy. That's interesting. According to uh, Dr. Baxter, to still the joy. He wanted them to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't merely come here to celebrate the victory that you guys have or to, to uh, declare the victory. I came here to commission you. That world that you were so afraid of, they're still out there lost. And I'm sending you out. Oh my goodness. Wants to still their fears, wants to still their joy. And then watch it right here. He says, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Here's the great commission according to John. Just as the Father commissioned me to come and do for you what you could not do for yourself, I'm now commissioning you. I'm sending you. Here's your fourth thing. Jesus' followers become sent ones. The followers become sent ones. If you're a Christ follower, you're sent. You are a sent one. The word comes from apostolos, to to be sent on a mission uh, with a message. That's our, that's your, if you've ever wondered, by the way, what your purpose in life is, or, or let me say this way, here's the way it's normally asked me, what's God's will for my life? I remember being uh, in about 2004, I was studying under this amazing Bible teacher in Texas, and early one morning he goes, you guys keep coming to me asking me what God's will for your life is, I'm going to tell you right now. And I'm going, hey, all right, I'm glad I came to the program, I've got my pen in hand, tip in hand. He goes, God's will for your life is to quit asking what God's will for your life is, and to ask what's God's will, and then wrap your life around it. He said, I can tell you right now what God's will is because the word uh, doesn't hide it, it reveals it. God's will is to make known the mystery of the gospel, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Jesus Christ came as a mediator between God and lost men. He came to save sinners. He called, I'm going to read this to you. I quoted it earlier, but let me just, let me just, let me just read, let me just let the words of Scripture fall upon your hearts. This is so powerful. Write down 2 Corinthians 5. 17 and 20. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. It's true. The old is past, the new has come. And all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Listen to this. That is in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them, and he's entrusted to us. 
He's entrusted to you the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. What is your purpose? What's God's will for your life? There it is, that you be his ambassador, that you are sent with a, on a mission with a message. Well, am I supposed to be an accountant? Am I supposed to be a lawyer? Am I supposed to be a teacher? Am I supposed to be a coach? Sure, you can be any of those things, as long as you're on mission for Christ, as long as that career path is a platform for your purpose to be played out. This is where we get so backwards and upside down, that we trade in God's will for your life for some far lesser human uh, ideological means of living your life according to a career. All right, men's, most of the time you ask men, when you get to know them, the first question you say is, what do you do? And so men's identity, men and women, identity are tied to what you do and not who you are. But even at its core, our knee-jerk response to what you do, and you don't have to say it, you're not trying to make a point or be cute, but what we do is herald the gospel. What do you do? Make disciples of Jesus Christ. Oh, for a living? I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm in vocational ministry. I'm a teacher. I'm a coach. I had a, a professor for my doctorate, Dr. Robert Coleman, wrote Master Plan of Evangelism. If you've never heard of that, if that's the first time you've heard anyone say it, uh, do yourself a great favor and read it. One of the greatest books I think ever written, Master Plan of Evangelism. Uh, over 9 million copies circulating in the world, so I'm not the only one who thinks that. It's a great book on our purpose in Christ, to be disciple makers. Dr. Coleman used to say this, anything you do for your career uh, uh, or, or for a hobby, he always talked about playing golf as an example. He said, uh, who, he said, golf's a lot of fun. He, and what an unbelievable opportunity. It's a relational sport. You got four hours with one person or three people or four hours. I mean, that's a lot of time to, for sport to give opportunity for minute, afford an opportunity for ministry. And he would say, uh, if you're merely playing golf, if you're merely working out, if you're merely raising a family, if you're merely going to work and plugging your nine to five, and if you're doing it all apart from its ultimate purpose of being a platform for making disciples of Christ, then he says anything else without that purpose attached to it is an exercise in futility. At the end of the day, that's all it is. Translated, it's a waste of time. You're just checking the boxes. Listen, I'm thrilled that we have people in almost every arena of, uh, of society. I'm th so glad we have teachers, and I'm so glad we have um, businessmen and uh, homemakers and uh, doctors, tons of folks in the medical community. I'm so thrilled because what that tells me is we at Harvest Church have ambassadors for Christ all over this city in every defined conceivable sector and arena out there and if they're carrying out God's will for their life, man, it's like we are, I mean, it's like what an incredible strategy if we've equipped the, the, the saints for the work of the ministry and they're out there in every nook and cranny of our community making disciples, then I've got incredible hope. What a plan Jesus Christ set forth for the gospel to spread. 
please understand, the end of a Christian is not to get saved and then come to church and celebrate our salvation. That's like when their fear turns to joy. And then he says, hey, as the Father sent me, so I send you. And they're going, what? This is where the excitement begins. I'm telling you, here's what, I, here's what I want for you. Here's your number one application this week. Thanksgiving week, I don't know what that'll mean. That might mean a little different rhythm for you. Maybe it's normal, at least Monday to Wednesday. I want you to put a set of Great Commission goggles on. I want you to try this. And if you're a little bit scared, I think that's right where you should be. I want you to say, okay, you know what? If I'm honest, I don't normally think like this. I don't wake up in the morning salivating at the ministry opportunities before me this day. I get up, I think about breakfast. I think I probably should get a workout in today, sometime now or at lunch or after work. I think about the kids' schedules. I think about doing my job well so that I can continue to have a job, so that I can provide for my family. And we kind of have this day in mind. I would love it if as a body we just, we, we take back our purpose in Christ and say, all right, it's Monday and today the Lord is going to use me to impact eternity. I don't know how, but I guarantee it'll deal with that which is eternal in nature. So um, God and his word and the souls of man. And if you say, all right, Lord, uh, you, you're going to have to be the 12th man. I'm a little nervous here, but I'm willing to, I'm willing to, to button up the helmet. I'm willing to go. I'm going to get today. It's not merely about work. It's not merely about working out. It's not merely about getting food on the table. It's about you. Today, let's go. I'm going out as a sin. I'm literally going out as one that Jesus Christ said, hey, Kenan, I need you to get out there on the field today and play ball. I'm going to empower. Enemy's going to seem overwhelming. I'm going to empower you. Enemy can take you. He can't take me. You be available and usable. I'm going to do things through you today that we'll be celebrating for all eternity. And I'm awake and I'm aware to God's will for my life. And I don't care about your location. You can do this here. You can do this in Malaysia. I don't care about your vocation. You can do it in Germantown. You can do it on Mud Island. Maybe, maybe God's taking you to New Jersey, Newark, on business this week. Fantastic. Then that's where you are to be an ambassador for Christ. If we'll, put, if we'll see through that lens, oh my heavens, you'll have the most purposeful week of your life. and It'll have nothing to do with your work productivity. That's fine, that's good. But it's going to have to do with something far greater. The kingdom of God pushing forth through your obedience to the commission. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Now we lack something that's really important right here. By the way, let me make one note. The one who's saying this peace be with you. Father sent me, I'm sending you. He's got nail pierced hands. He has suffered like no man has ever suffered. Um, just know the world hates Jesus. The world put Jesus on a cross. You are enunciating the message of the gospel, which is the truth of Jesus Christ crucified, risen from the grave. The expectation would be that there will be some pushback. The expectation would be that there's going to be persecution. The expectation will be you too will have to suffer. Paul says in Colossians 1, uh, one of those powerful verses, Colossians 1, 24, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. There was nothing lacking in Christ's afflictions in terms of redemption. He paid it in full. But watch this. 
for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. I will fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. In other words, the gospel's gonna be made known. They've already beat Jesus all they can beat him. Can't beat Jesus anymore. Who can they beat? His body, the church. Who can they be upset with? Who can they persecute? Who can they come after? You and I. So Paul said, hey, I'll take it. I'll take, I'll fill up whatever's lacking in the affliction of Christ when it comes to making the word of God known. Wow. So that's our calling. Be prepared. When you, when you play any game, if you're an athlete, you go to any, on any court, on any field, you expect the other team to fight against you. You expect adversity. One of the things I always preach to the kids is the athletics we're playing give us a chance to learn how to persevere through adversity because there's a greater cause, the cause of the Great Commission. I don't want them to fold the first time it's difficult. Um, Hebrews 12, by the way, on that note, in case you're one that's going, gee whiz, I don't know about the persecution piece. Well, I don't either. But it says here in Hebrews 12, 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or be faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Jesus went further than he's going to ask you and I to go. He's been all the way to the worst possible torturous death. May, there may be someone in here that, that is tortured, beaten, and martyred for the sake of Christ. Most of us, the experience will be far less in terms of persecution than what Jesus experienced. And yet it's still going to be significant. We don't minimize it. But the 12th man is on your side. Don't be faint-hearted or give up. Well, watch what he says here. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Here's the principle here. If God tells you to do something, he gives you what you need to do it. They cannot possibly be ambassadors who represent him well apart from the peace, the presence, and the power of the Holy Spirit alive in them. He breathes on them. Remember when he breathed on Adam in the garden? Adam came alive, breath of God went in him. He could now steward the garden. He can now create and cultivate. He can now rule and subdue. He can now be fruitful and multiply. He could do the things God had called him to do once the breath of God came in. What's the same for man who is born again? Spiritually, you're alive. The breath of God comes on you. You receive the Holy Spirit. Now you can make disciples of all nations. Again, God's going to do the heavy lifting. He always carries the heavy end of the cross. But you take upon yourself the cross of Christ and your life is not your own. You're an ambassador for Jesus Christ. He breathes on you. Receive the Holy Spirit. Let me say this. Uh, you cannot be a Christian and not have the Holy Spirit indwelling you fully. If you're saved, sincerely saved, truly, if you're born again, if you're converted, if you've been regenerated, then 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, baptizes you into the body of Christ and takes up residence in you. He's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the glory and praise of God. So you have the Holy Spirit alive in you. Now here, here's the, so you're baptized by the Holy Spirit, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Here's the part that can come and go. Ephesians 5, he gives us a command to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're not always filled. 
Filled is you cooperating with the Spirit's leading. It's you being submitted to the Holy Spirit. Uh, in other words, your flesh struggles with lust and greed and pride and there's fleshly desires and you probably have spiritual conviction over fleshly desires and there's this little war going on in your heart. And sometimes if you're like me and everybody, First John says none of us are rid of sin yet, then sometimes you give in to the fleshly desires and the Spirit of God grieves. Paul says, hey, don't be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, the way wine controls you, he's commanding us to be controlled by the Spirit of God. You've got all the Holy Spirit you ever need. The question is, are you surrendered to his leadership in your life? Are you listening to his voice? Are you, to an ever-increasing degree, are you following the Spirit's leading and not the flesh is leading, or the, giving in to the flesh's cravings? There's that constant struggle but sanctification is we're growing by the power of being conformed by the Holy Spirit into the very image of Christ. And he says, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. This doesn't mean that you and I can forgive sins. That, that might be what that looks like at face value. If you dig in a little bit, you find out that, that they are forgiven is a passive perfect verb that means, it's, it's, it's not active in the sense that you do it. It means it's been done on their behalf and they're in a state of eternal forgiveness, uh, or they're under the wrath of God until that, uh, it's with, until that forgiveness is theirs. It's withheld until then. So it's talking about the state that someone is in. So if you have the chance to lead someone to Christ, let's say they become aware of their sin. They say, what do I do? I want to receive Jesus. How do I become a Christian? It's one of the greatest moments in any believer's life is to have someone ask them that and say, good gracious, that's incredible. Uh, uh, here, here's what let's do. Let's, the, the Lord is not withholding salvation. Jesus went to the cross for you. Let's pray together. I'll lead you in a simple sinner's prayer. Repeat after me. Follow me in this. Lord, I recognize my sinfulness. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross in my place and for my sin. I'd ask by the power of his blood that you would save me. Wash me clean in his blood. Wash away my sin as far as the east is from the west. Uh, Give unto me the salvation that Jesus Christ earned on my behalf. Let him be mine and let me be his now and forever. Amen. And probably somebody, pray, if you have the chance to pray that with somebody, they're probably going to look at you with tears in your eyes and say, well, they're probably going to feel something. They're probably going to feel an unbelievable, uh, a, little, a little joyous explosion in their spirit. That usually accompanies a, a true repentance. And they're going to say, so am I saved? You know what you can say to someone in that moment? It's not that we, I don't have the power to save anybody, but someone that comes penitent as a sinner, trusting in Christ, now, do they have an assurance that they are truly saved? If they've truly been saved, salvation is theirs now and forever. You don't have it today, lose it tomorrow, have it today, lose it next Thursday. We, don't we can't lose what we did not gain. Christ, when he saves you, he holds you, and the Father holds you, and the Spirit seals you. And the only way you and I lose our salvation is our Savior is no longer worthy. And he is eternally worthy. So you can tell that person, you are indeed a child of God. You're saved. Your sins have been forgiven. You can declare you're in a state of blessed peace with God now and forever. You've got life eternal. Not maybe, you've got it. 
I had a guy email me this week, says, I just don't have an assurance of my salvation. I'm going to meet with him hopefully this week. We're just going to pour over God's scriptures. We're going to read 1 John chapter 5. And we're going to read uh, Philippians chapter 1. Um, and he began a good work in you. He's going to complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. We'll read Jude 1, that he who saves you keeps you. We'll read John chapter 5. I mean, we're just going to read God's word because I think the enemy prays, especially on young believers, to make them think that maybe they're not truly saved. If you have trusted fully upon Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you put no confidence in your flesh. You put all your confidence and hope in him. He takes up residence in you. And, and no one can steal from you what the Lord Jesus has accomplished for you and declared to be true. You've been justified. It means to be declared righteous. Not by you or Bill or Nancy. God. He's declared it of you. He who had no sin became sin that you and I might become the righteousness of God. He declares it true of you. Not based on your performance. Not based on anything you've done or anything you will do based on who Christ is and that you have trusted on him for your salvation. And so what the Bible says is true. We're all going to, Hebrews 9, 27, it's appointed to man, every man to die once and then have judgment. And when you face eternal judgment, um, those who have trusted Christ, this is Revelation 20, 11 and following, they will be risen, they will receive glorified bodies just as Christ received a glorified body and they will be alive forever and ever in the presence of Christ, the throne of God and all of the believers. I had a gal email me this morning and said I'm seven, in our body, I'm 77 today, I'm one step closer to glory. She's just longing, I'm, all, I'm almost there. I'm gonna tell her, hey, you ain't done yet. All right, Monday's coming, we need you. You're one of our best sent ones. <laughs> all right, you're leading the charge, okay? Um, but it says to those who don't believe, the wrath of God is still on them. It says there's a second judgment. And the Lamb's book of lives are, uh, life is open. If their name is not in the book of life, they receive, uh, they receive the wages of their sin. It's eternal death. Um, that's what he's saying. You've got the power of the gospel. It's alive in you, and it's given as a stewardship to you. Go and declare it. Go and declare it. Now, Thomas, the twin, we think he's a twin of Matthew, he's, quote, unquote, the doubter. He says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, place my finger in the mark, or place my hands out, I'm not going to believe. By the way, that's okay. Jesus is not offended by that. If he did not rise from the dead, you're right, Thomas. There's no reason to believe in a Christ that's not risen. The whole gospel rises and falls. His entire messiahship rises and falls on whether or not he did indeed rise from the grave. Here's another little, little short book that's worth your time and five bucks probably to buy it. More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. If you read chapter two alone, it's worth your five bucks. Chapter two alone, he makes the point. I believe he gets this from C.S. Lewis because I saw something just like it in Mere Christianity. He says this. He says, you know, if you ask most of your lost friends, what do you make of Jesus? If somehow you're in a conversation, they're generally going to say what? Most people in the world say that Jesus was, I'm talking about non-believers, by the way. So they're not saying he's Lord and Savior and God. They would say something like, you know, I just can't get on the idea that he's God. But I mean, he, he was obviously a great example for how we should live our lives. He was a really good moral man, religious leader, great prophet. You're going to get one of those things. And Josh McDowell says, impossible, impossible. 
can't do that. This man claimed, Matthew 17, that he would, to be the son of God and the son of man, he'd be turned over in the hands of sinful men who would crucify him. And on the third day, he'd raise from the dead. He claimed that life was found eternally in him. There was no way to have peace with God except through him. He is not a good moral teacher and religious leader and great prophet if he didn't rise from the dead. If he did, he's certainly more than that. But if he didn't, you cannot give him those titles. You'd have to be honest and say, he's a deceiver. He's a liar. He's the greatest liar there's ever been. No one has deceived more people for longer in the history of man than him. Or he's just absolutely out of his mind. He's a lunatic. you got to be honest. You have to be intellectually consistent and say he is either a loon or he's a liar or he rose. And if he rose, he's Lord. But you gotta be, you have to have integrity with that. You can't, he's not a good man. He's the God man. Or he's the worst of men. Which is he? Thomas, Jesus has no problem with this. Thomas says... I got to see it. And eight days later, the disciples were inside. Thomas is with him. And although the doors are locked, he came and said, so he appeared among them. It's a resurrection appearance. And look what he says. Peace be with you. Looks at Thomas. Put your finger here and see my hands and put, on, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Romans 1, 4 says, Jesus is declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Put your hand here, Thomas. Don't disbelieve, believe. Now, this is important because we've all had the thought of, man, I wish I could have been Thomas and, you know, that would really, my faith would be a lot more concrete. By the way, Thomas did have faith at that point. He declared, my Lord and my God. This is the, this is the, this is the charisma. This is the confession of any, the essence of the gospel that anyone saved must believe Jesus is Lord and God and he's got to be yours. You're not saved on your parents' faith. You understand? My Lord, my God. That's, that's a salvific declaration, and it's the only one. Jesus is who he said he is, and he's mine. And Jesus says, have you believed because you've seen me? Listen carefully, gang. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know what he's talking about right there? He's talking about you. He's talking about you and I. Uh, you remember the Roman centurions, a great picture of what faith in the church has meant. He sends the Jewish elders to let Jesus know that his uh, uh, child is sick. Can he come and heal him? And they're telling Jesus, this guy's worthy, yada, yada. Jesus starts heading that way. He sends a second group out and says, hey, he doesn't even have to come under my roof. I don't have to see him. I know what it's like to have authority. He has all authority. If he says the words, my child will be healed. Jesus says, I've not seen faith like this anywhere in Jerusalem. He didn't have to see. He believed in his word because of the authority Jesus had. That's what it is to be a Christian in the church age. And look what we get in verse 30. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Can you imagine how long the Gospel of John would have been if you recorded every miraculous thing Jesus did? But these that I have recorded are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life. Hey, I, lo I love that. The entire purpose of John's gospel is that you insert your name, is that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. I, 
I'm, I'm sure there's people here that are not yet saved. I mean, just, just a, a group this large, that, it's just probably the case. Uh, I've been praying this week that someone would have a, a salvation testimony that stems from this day forth, that someone will say to you, hey, when were you saved? And for me, that was almost 30 years ago. Crazy. Keep getting older. Almost 30 years ago, when, when Chris Crichton shared with me the gospel, and, 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 and uh, it wasn't Chris that saved me. Chris didn't forgive my sin. But you know what Chris was? He was sent out. Just like the Father had sent Jesus, so Chris had been sent out. He was just available. He was faithful. He shared. He didn't know I was going to get saved. God knew. He used that moment to illumine me to the truth of Christ, to bring me to repentance from my sin, to a childlike faith in who Christ is and what he's done for me. I believed on Jesus. My soul was cleansed. I was born again. That's my, that's my testimony. That's when it began. Praise God that again and again and again, ad infinitum, he has revealed himself to me on this great journey of relationship with God. And that relational intimacy grows when I'm on mission per my purpose in life, per my calling, per his will. That's where the, that's where the friction is. That's where the tension is. That's where the dependence is. That's where the, that's where the goosebumps are. That's where I'm engaged on mission, where I'm dependent, and he continues to show up, and my joy increases, and it'll continue to increase till my faith becomes sight. Well, I've been praying that somebody's testimony begins this morning. And here's what, I, here's what I'm hoping, that somebody says, hey, uh, who told you about Jesus? And I'd love it, I'd love it if you're able to say, a fella named John. John who? Well, John the the one that Jesus loved, huh? Oh yeah. He wrote of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It was, it was beyond what my mind could imagine. And then he wrote of the crucifixion of Christ in detail, in bloody graphic detail about what Christ endured for me. And then he wrote of the empty tomb and, and the story of Mary and the intimacy between she and Christ that was so tangible and it's available to anyone who trust upon Christ. And then he wrote to the disciples, just like me, inadequate, unusable. And they were afraid for their lives. But he enlivened them to the truth of who he was. He breathed on them with the Holy Spirit. And then you know what he said? He said that he did all of that so that I might believe and have life. And on that day, I trusted him. And now I'm like Mary. Now I'm like these guys. And now I'm sharing with you as one who is sent out on a mission with a message. Amen? I played uh, baseball for seven weeks in Africa in the summer of 1998. And I went on that trip. If I'm honest with you, I didn't know it. God revealed this to me when I was there. I went on that trip. My identity was as a baseball player. That's what it was. That's a sad identity, by the way. That's what it was. I thought life was found in that. Who happened to be a Christian? Seven weeks of the Lord chiseling through my heart, uh, helping me to go from fear to joy in ministry. And one day it dawned on me that I didn't want to be a baseball player anymore who happened to be a Christian. That I wanted to be a Christian and that my privilege and my responsibility was to be a Christian who happened in that season of life to be a decent baseball player. Can I tell you what? You're not a teacher a doctor, a homemaker, 
even a dad or a mom uh, or a son or a daughter, you're none of those things who happens to be a Christian or you're upside down. When you're in Christ, you are a saved, redeemed, regenerated, commissioned Christ follower who happens to be a whole lot of other things. Um, don't be distracted by politics and pandemics and miss out on your purpose. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. It doesn't have to start tomorrow, but Monday morning, when you get up, put the goggles on. Let's go. Twelfth man. He's on our side. Father, I'm thankful that you have commissioned us. I'm humbled. I can't even... It's amazing to me that you would use someone like me, as inadequate as I am, uh, as far from righteous as I am, as imperfect in every way as I am. And the fact that I know those imperfections and am appalled by them, and, and yet you know them all too well. And they don't scare you. You've breathed upon me your Holy Spirit. You've called me to be yours and to now go on mission with you. You've said, and lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. We do not go alone. We go with the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for sending us the helper. I pray that your people here today, if anyone does not know you, I pray that today, by the good word of John, that today someone would repent of their sin and trust in you as Lord and Savior, that they would say with Thomas, my Lord and my God, and they would be saved. For those here that are in you, that we would be rekindled to the passion, to the fires of mission. Thank you for Joe's passion, our missions moment. That it, through him, you've started a network of Christian schools all over the world. Lord, that was a unique calling on his life, but it's a general and shared calling on all of our lives that we're to be a part of a redemptive movement to the very ends of the earth. Let us not miss out in fear or in distraction. Lord, we present ourselves usable to you this day. Use us. Bring glory to Jesus' name. In his name we pray, amen.